So as we return to this book of Galatians, we are returning, as we've often mentioned and noted, to what is perhaps the most fiery, the most passionate letter that we ever find in the New Testament, especially uh, that ever has come from the Apostle Paul. And so far, as we've seen, as we've gone through the majority of three and a half chapters, if you will, we've seen that passion, so to speak, be channeled with almost a laser-like focus at clarifying the gospel. And rightly so. For the better part of three chapters, Paul has taken on himself this necessity and this need to defend, but also establish the truth of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what we are being treated to, uh, what we have been treated to through three chapters. We've seen Paul denounce all of the teachings of those wayward Judaizers. He's, he's, he's tried and he's, he's succeeded in dispelling all of the, the myths and the lies that they used to deceive the hearts of the Galatians. And how? How did he do that? Well, quite simply, by over and over again declaring and championing the facts of God's gracious redemption through the death of his son, Jesus. He's declared, and it comes out all the more clearly when we see that in verse 13 of chapter 3, that Christ bore the curse, he became the curse, so that we might be free from it. It's the same as what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, that the one who knew no sin became sin, so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God. This is what he has been everywhere declaring and defending. And so we could say that through three chapters, we've been treated to seeing Paul the the theologian. Or Paul the the scholar, if you will. Paul the teacher. He's taking uh, false doctrine and replacing it with true doctrine. He's taking all of the false beliefs and replacing it with what is true. But the middle portion of chapter 4 lets us see a different side of the Apostle Paul. Something that is a little bit different than what we have been treated to before. Let's just see, we could say, Paul the pastor. As here, as we start in verse number 8 and read down through verse number 20, as we're going to look at this morning, we get a glimpse of the depths of Paul's care and his concern for the souls of the Galatians. He, you'll notice a shift. He shifts from this very powerful, very sort of doctrinal rhetoric, so to speak, to this meaningful and very personal appeal to the Galatians themselves as he refers to them in verses 12 and 19 as his brothers and his little children. He's endearing himself to these whom he loved, which again lets us see. What drove Paul to write this letter in the first place? What motivated Paul to dispatch and publish this letter called Galatians in the first place? As we've noted before, Paul was not out to to sort of save his reputation. As he says back in chapter 1 verse 10, remember what he says there? For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This has nothing to do with my approval rating, with my reputation with other men. That's not what drove Paul. That's not what moved Paul to put pen to paper, so to speak. What moved him 
was only the reason of the gospel. The gospel at this time was on the line. It was at risk of being lost. It was at risk of being abandoned. It was at risk of being, uh, of being rejected. And this Paul, this preacher of the gospel, has been entrusted to preach the good news by, about God's son by God's son himself. And he never hid the facts that, he, that this was the most important thing in his life. As he says in Acts chapter number 20, he says, I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. <laughs> Nothing else mattered to the Apostle Paul. He lived and he breathed the gospel and he preached it so passionately and so fervently but I, because I think he knew that he was the one who needed to hear it the most. He was the chief of sinners that the gospel was addressing. And he also defended it with his very life because he knew that it wasn't his. The gospel was not Paul's. It wasn't any other man's. This gospel is from God. It's about God. And it has to deal and it concerns with nothing else but the truth of God himself. But the point is, as we approach this particular section, Paul's heart was not just for the Galatians to know a bunch of stuff. He wasn't out for just a, a, a lot more head knowledge in, in the midst of the Galatians' lives. He didn't want them to just know these doctrines, so to speak. His heart was for sinners. His heart was for these people themselves and their lives. His heart was for their souls. And that's why he was writing and preaching as he did. Because he knew their souls were on the line. He knew that for the Galatians, their eternity was at stake. And this is why Paul is here making this personal appeal to these who are in Galatia, in southern Galatia here. Because he knows that the gospel is on the line for them. They're at risk of losing it. They're at risk of rejecting it. Again, they're at risk of abandoning it to their own peril. As we've seen and noted, they had been duped by these very, very deceitful Judaizers into believing that their justification, their standing before the living God was a mixture of not only Jesus' work, but theirs as well. That in order to have a right and a clear and a free standing before the holy God, the holy of holies, they had to add a little bit of their own effort and gumption into the equation. They not only had to believe in what Jesus did for them on the cross, they had to add to that strict devotion to all of the laws and codes of the Mosaic law. Only then, only then were there, was their right standing secure as they came preaching that unless you be circumcised, no one can be saved. Unless you do X, Y, and Z, your standing is still up in the air. It's, it's a question mark. And this is nothing but a, a very confused mingling of faith and religion Religion of man is the gospel of man uh, that ascribes all of man's standing before the God of all creation 
onto man's shoulders himself, which does nothing but leave the gospel in shambles. It leaves it in a mess. Because what have we seen? And what is most important for us to glean and understand and grasp is that the gospel is nothing but the announcement that sinners are made right with God by nothing but the work of God's Son himself. That's what the gospel announces. It's an announcement of good news. It's a declaration of something that has occurred, of something that has been accomplished for and on behalf of those who could never accomplish it in and of themselves. And so now notice how Paul brings all of that weighty doctrine and very important and powerful rhetoric down right to where the Galatians were. Notice in verse number 8, notice what he says. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have, become, that have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. He's putting them in remembrance of what they were prior to God getting a hold of them through the gospel. They were slaves, essentially. They were slaves to their own passions, to their own lusts, to their own desires. They were living in subjection to the only gods that they were ever familiar with. Of course, they... The Galatians were Gentiles, which means that they had a lot of pagan religion that they were, that they were encumbered by. Their religious experience and upbringing, if you will, was enamored by all of the myths and rituals of, of paganism. Full of lifeless gods and powerless deities of their own invention. And this is what Paul is saying. These are the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. And when the gospel was preached to you, God himself snatched you out of its slavery to all of that. And brought you into life. But this lets us see here this powerful notion that the world's idea of religion or faith, if you will, is... Nothing but a poor and pathetic imitation of the real thing. It doesn't enslave. Or excuse me, it doesn't save, it enslaves. It, it doesn't deliver, it, it dictates. And it doesn't liberate anyone, it actually tyrannizes and oppresses. And even if the Galatians weren't aware of it, they were living in oppression by these false gods, by all of these things that they were trying to find hope and faith and, and meaning in. But here, notice what Paul does. He connects all of that pagan idolatry and ritualism, all of, that, all of those things that colored the pasts of all of the Galatians, and he connects it to their newfound acceptance of Jewish legalism. Notice what he says in verse number 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. You notice what he's doing. These, these days and, and these months and seasons and so on and so forth, they are referenced back to all of those festivals and ceremonies and those things that they were supposed to keep as prescribed by the law of Moses. That's what he's referring to. You can sort of see uh, uh, already here that the Judaizers had been uh, successful in, in getting their doctrine into the churches in Galatia and saying that, yes, you have to do these things, and they were starting to practice them. 
But notice again verse 9 because what did Paul compare their pagan ritualism to? He says it's nothing but worthless elementary principles of the world. And if you jump back to verse 3, notice what he says. In the same way also when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You notice what he's just done? In verse number 9, he's using weak and worthless elementary principles of the world to describe pagan ritualism and religion. In verse number 3, he's using that same phrase, uh, the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, to describe uh, the law of Moses. This is an alarming connection. Because he's describing both in the same manner. And of course we have to stop and think. Paul is not meaning to suggest that the law of God is no better than paganism. That's not what he's saying. As he says in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy and good and righteous. But of course as he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The point is, as Paul is here trying to say, that using the law itself and all of these codes and all of these things and check boxes, so to speak, as a means of justification is not at all what it means to use the law lawfully. Enlisting this code of rituals and rites and sacrifices as a way to be made right with God is nothing but a scheme of Satan who always twists and perverts the truth. So long as you're checking the right boxes and doing the right amount of thing and having enough effort put forth on your part, then, then you'll be right. See, if you're hoping to be made right with God Almighty, the regulations of the law aren't going to help you any more than the rituals of paganism. That's Paul's point. Both are inefficient. Both are ineffective at bringing you into right standing with God. And so therefore, as Paul has just declared, by embracing all of these deceitful doctrines of the Judaizers with all of their legalism and all of their codes, the Galatians had simply traded one form of slavery for another. That's what he says in verse number 9. Whose slaves you want to be once more. You were enslaved and then the gospel freed you and now you're wanting to go back to slavery again? They were putting themselves back into bondage. It was almost as if a prisoner was going back into the cell and closing the cell doors on himself. (laughs) That's the image that Paul is presenting to these churches. You're putting yourself back into chains. And I think this is why Paul is so fired up. And indeed, I think this is why Paul says, as he says in verse number 20, that he's basically at his wit's end. Look at verse 20. Notice what he says. I wish... I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. I'm puzzled. I'm at my wit's end with you. I don't, what more do I have to show you that the gospel is all about freedom in Christ? It's not about all of these code keeping and code falling in order for you to be made right with God. You are right with God and that bleeds itself out. That breeds into new life. You've got it backwards. You're locking yourself into prison, he's saying. Who would want to exchange freedom for slavery? Who would want to put chains back on after being freed from them? And this is why Paul is so puzzled. Perplexed, as he says. He even wonders whether he's wasted his time with them. Did you catch that in verse number 11? 
I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And I think, I would say, I, I, I think Paul is being somewhat tongue-in-cheek here, so to speak. He's, I guess my time with you was wasted. Because I, I think it's doubtful that Paul would ever consider any time spent laboring for the gospel as a vain thing, as a waste of time. But I think at the same, by the same token, I think he's trying to jar the attention of the Galatians so they may, they might see that they are at a real crossroads. They are at a legitimate crisis of faith. And Paul is trying to get their attention to see exactly that. You are at a crossroads of what you say you believe. Do you believe that you are made right by what you do? Or do you believe that you've been made right as a free gift of the word, of the promise, of the gospel? And I think this is why Paul reminds them of how they came to faith in the first place. Notice again, he appeals to their past. And that's one who knew it. Look at verse 13. You know, he's reminding them. Remember those days when I was with you? You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. He's jogging their memory back to those Early days on the, on the very first missionary journey. The, 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 the very first missionary journey that he and Barnabas went on. Acts chapter 13 and 14. When they went into southern Galatia. And as he says there. Paul clarifies that his initial visit with the Galatians. Was a trial to use his words. It was a trial to the Galatians. It was a burden on them. Apparently as he says here. That he had developed some sort of bodily ailments. Which had made his time with them somewhat of a burden that, that, that they were now having to care for and, and deal with this very sick preacher. Some scholars believe that this ailment that he refers to is, is the same thing as his thorn in the flesh from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. While others have theorized that he had come down with a really bad case of malaria which forced him to adjust all of his travel plans... And that's kind of a silly debate. We don't really know what he contracted here. But regardless, Paul is telling us quite clearly, his plans were changed. He wasn't intending on making it into southern Galatia, but because of his sickness, he did. And he brought the gospel to them because of it. Whatever his affliction was, Paul or God was using it so that Paul could bring the gospel to these who were in Galatia. And it resulted in this gospel being preached far and wide. It resulted in Christ being received so readily by these who did not know him. And Paul reminds them, you received me warmly, as he says in verse number 14. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me. But instead you received me as an angel, as Christ Jesus himself. Instead of, instead of turning away this, this, this foreign preacher from a place that you weren't very aware of, this weak and sickly and very unimpressive man, they welcomed him as an authoritative representative of God himself. That's what occurred. And in fact, they were so 
Blessed. Paul reminds them, remember how blessed, how happy you were when I was with you, when I was, when I was visiting with you? He says, you were so blessed by the, by the presence of God, by the preaching of the gospel, that you were ready to pluck out your own eyes as a demonstration of your love and affection for us. And again, I, I don't think Paul is being literal here. As he says, if possible... <laughs> Hey, I think he's using a little bit of hyperbole to emphasize his point, to magnify. This is how fond you were of me. This is how uh, close we had grown together through the preaching of the gospel, through the reception of the Holy Spirit and of grace. We had grown to this amazing family of God. And you would have been, you would have been willing to do anything. Anything for me. Even if it meant gouging out your own eyes, which is what intensifies what he says next in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You see what Paul has just done? He's emphasized this point to get the Galatians to remember how how fondly and how welcomingly they had embraced Paul in those early days. That way they would be forced to reckon with how distant they had grown, how withdrawn they were now, how standoffish they were treating him now. What gives, Paul basically says. What, what gives? I was, your, I was your friend, I was your beloved friend and, uh, and preacher, but now you're treating me as an enemy. And this lets us see, just, it gives us a glimpse at just how effective those false teachers were, at how effective those Judaizers were at turning the Galatians against Paul himself. They had successfully sort of sweet-talked their way into being favored and admired by all of the congregations in southern Galatia. But as Paul is going to go on to say, they're not being honest with you. Notice verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make, mu- may make much of them. Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He's calling out these teachers for exactly what they were. They are narcissists, he says. Quite clearly, quite simply, these teachers that you are fawning over, that you are just eating up all of their teaching uh, 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 as, as if you're at this buffet on a Sunday afternoon, you're, all of that, they're, they're feeding you narcissism. <laughs> they were persuasive, yeah, they were convincing. They gave everyone the impression that they were invested, that they cared, that they had the Galatians' well-being in mind. But as Paul is here saying, that's not at all the case. That phrase, make much, is a phrase that is suggestive of their zeal, of their eagerness. And so Paul is here saying, they, they appeared to have a zeal for you, to have an eagerness for you. They appeared as if they were wanting the best for you. They were doting on you like a courtship. They were wanting, they appeared as if they were wanting everything the best for you. But for all of their zeal, for all of their eagerness, they were nothing but wolves in sheep's clothing. As Paul is here saying, they were zealous for no good purpose, other than their own Gain other than their own advancement. That's what here Paul is here uh, pulling away the curtain saying, these Judaizers, they don't have your best interest in mind. They're nothing but a bunch of silver-tongued preachers. 
who had used their charisma to earn your trust so that they could be propped up, so that they could be empowered. They maneuvered their way into their lives only to then lock them up from hearing the truth. Notice what that's what Paul says. They want to shut you out. They want to lock you in to being forced to only resorting to them in order to get answers. Basically, the message of the Judaizers was, Paul's a liar, Paul's a heretic, Paul's unorthodox. Don't listen to Paul. We are the truth tellers. Listen to us. We have all the answers. You see what that does? It's... It's locking the Galatians out of actual reception of the truth. The only thing the Judaizers were zealous for was the attention and the admiration of the Galatians. They were zealous for themselves, Paul says. They didn't care about souls. They didn't care one lick about the eternity of the Galatians. They only wanted others. They only wanted these believers to make much of them. And I think this is a good reminder. For us especially. For any congregation though. That just because something is said behind the pulpit. Doesn't mean that it's worth hearing, receiving, or applying. And this is why I think it's really vital. That we don't check out when the preacher is preaching. And look, I know, I know, I get it. When the preacher is going long, I could get it. It's easy to check out. (laughs) I understand. But I think we often gloss, and I think Paul is letting us see here, just how important it is, how important this issue is, this time when the word is being declared. You know what's happening here? This is a two-way street of faith. Maybe you've never thought about it that way before. That's what's happening whenever a sermon is being delivered. It's my job as the preacher to preach the word thoughtfully and faithfully. But it's also your job to listen thoughtfully and faithfully. And I would even add discerningly. Because if you're not locked in, if you're not paying attention, if you're not tuned in to what's being said, to what's being fed to you, then you might be blind to the deception that is being given to you hand over foot. That's why it's, it's always, always, always critical that we check what a preacher says against what the word of God says. And yes, this goes for me too. I don't stand up here as this person who says, yeah, listen to me and only me and don't listen to anyone else. Listen to God's word. I don't have any authority of my own. All my authority is borrowed. My authority is on loan from God himself who when I step behind this thing and I prepare these sermons and deliver them to you, I want you to see that it's not me, it's not my words, it's not my articulation, it's not my eloquence, it's God's words. That's the authority, that's the standard. Check it against that. And if it doesn't line up, call me out. If it doesn't line up with what that is, what what the word's saying, call out the preacher. Paul's essentially saying, you've dropped the ball in this, Galatians. You've been fed. You've been fed a lot of lies. You've been fed a lot of deception. You see, the Judaizers had positioned themselves as the the sole, the primary authorities for the Galatians. Because they wanted the Galatians to make much of them. But their teachings were not only unbiblical, but they were just self-interested. 
self-focused. Notice Notice the contrast, as Paul has just clearly uh, described how narcissistic, how self-absorbed the Judaizers were and what they were preaching. It sounded good and it sounded nice, but really what was at the core is that their own gain. And notice how Paul describes his own ministry on behalf of the Galatians. Notice verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am in, again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, whether Paul was physically with them or not, the good purpose of the gospel would prevail, would carry on. Why? Because the work of the gospel was not dependent upon Paul's presence, but upon the Holy Spirit's presence. And because actually it wasn't even really Paul's work, this whole thing was God's work. Because Paul wasn't the point, Christ is. And he's saying, it doesn't matter whether I'm with you or not, the gospel can still be advanced and be furthered. It doesn't matter about me. See, Paul's words show us just how at odds he was with the Judaizers themselves. Their intentions and their motivations could not be more opposed, could not be more contrary to one another. And again, this is what he makes clear in verse 19 with that very, uh, very illustrative picture. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed within you. It's a very provocative image, is it not? This is the only example in all of Paul's letters where he uses this term of endearment, my little children. You'll find it in the epistles of the Apostle John. But this is the only time you'll, you'll find it in Paul's letters. Which I think lets us understand just how much he adored these believers in Galatia. They were his children. But this whole ordeal has put him in such torment that he compares it to the anguish of childbirth, which is a very, very striking image. And it got me to thinking, I was, I was, I've had a couple weeks to study and ponder and reflect upon what is Paul talking about here. I couldn't help but think about my own experiences of being in the delivery room with Natalie, watching all three of my kids be born into this world. Truly, I would say it's, I mean, it's, it's, it might sound cliche, but I would agree it's a true cliche. <laughs> That's life's greatest miracle, seeing a life come into this world like that. And it's hard to describe the feeling, especially since I'm the dad, and dads aren't very helpful in those rooms other than saying, good job. But I was there, I got to be there. It's incredible to be there when, when your son or daughter is born. At that exact moment, when the whole room just becomes this frenzied rush of, of just pain and emotion and people running everywhere and concern and nerves and tension, and it's all balled up into one. And then yet, none of that seems to matter once that little one is in your arms. All the pain and all the agony and all of the noise just seems to just fade as you stare into the eyes of another life, of another soul that is staring back at you. I always remember when Lydia was born, she was born with just these piercing, cold, black eyes, it felt like. It was like she was staring into my soul. And then at that moment, you 
are made to think, man, I can't imagine doing life without you. I've just met you. And I can't imagine life any other way. (laughs) Maybe you're wondering what all of that has to do with the Galatians. Losing their faith in the gospel. Why would Paul use this picture of the anguish of childbirth as an illustration of his love for them? Well, I don't think he's just trying to like pull on their heartstrings or play with their emotions. I think he's expressing the depths of his care for them, for their, for their very souls. Because you would see, I would say this, that besides the cross and besides a, a battlefield, I would say a delivery room is the ultimate scene of self-sacrifice here on this earth. Moms, I applaud you. You go through all kinds of pain and agony and inconvenience, to say the very least. But yet all of it is worth it because that's how much you love your little one. So much so that you willingly go through it all, all over again. And similarly, Paul says the same thing. I've agonized over you. I've grieved over you. And I'm ready, he says, I'm quite ready and quite willing to agonize you over you all over again. If that's what it means for Christ to be formed in you, that's how much I care for you. That's how much I care for your souls. He had given them everything. He had poured out his soul On their behalf also that they might be free from sin and from death and from darkness. And his only desire, his deepest desire was for these churches were to become as free in Christ as he was. That's what he means back in verse 12 where he says, brothers I entreat you, become as I am. I want you to be free in Christ. He wasn't out for himself. He wasn't zealous for applause or Acclaim or accolades. His supreme concern was for souls to be free. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what lies at the heart of this good news. The fruit of the gospel is always a life and a heart that is focused on others. Lives that are consumed and that are centered on the gospel of Jesus are lives that are oriented towards the needs of other people. Not just self-serving and self-absorbed and self-interested lives. It's others and self-sacrificial lives. This is what Paul is getting at in Philippians 2 when he's urging the Philippians to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Namely, the mind and attitude that considers the needs of others as more important than your own. And the point is that this is what moms do in delivery rooms. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. And this is what the gospel does in our lives. Paul was preoccupied with giving the gospel to others. There was nothing more he could do for souls who were facing eternity other than to give them the good news that they were free in Christ because of what Christ had done and accomplished. Nothing else mattered. 
And this is why Paul was so absorbed and indeed we could say consumed with this message of Christ crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And he was so stubborn on that that he resisted the urge to preach anything else. And I'll just repeat myself. You've heard me say this. I pray to have the same devotion. The same message. Every single person here, yes, we have lives and, and, and concerns and cares and worries. and Each one of you has a soul that is going to spend somewhere for eternity. Either in an eternity of bliss in the presence of Jesus or an eternity of agony and separation from God himself. Either in heaven or in hell. And that's why... That's why I find myself never being able to get away from preaching the truth of Jesus. I don't want to know anything for you or by you except Christ and him crucified. Similarly, I pray to have that same resolve till my dying breath. The old preacher, Richard Baxter, he put it this way. I preached as never sure to preach again. And as a dying man to dying men. (laughs) That's a helpful, I think, rhetoric to come into the pulpit with. To approach any sermon with. That everyone, not to scare you, is at some stage of dying. (laughs) As soon as you're born into this life, you are dying. And when I stand here before, I'm a dying man preaching to dying men and women. And I tell you this morning that there is only one way to be free from death and sin and darkness and hell and the grave. And that is to be free in Christ. The one who absorbed all of your pain and wretchedness and agony and sin and darkness on the cross himself. The one who became the curse for cursed ones like you and like me. That's what dying souls need to hear the most. That's the only message that sets dying souls free. It's Christ alone. It's what he has accomplished. It's what he has endured, the eternal one dying so that we might live. The Christ of God enduring all of that agony so that we might be free. This is the message that Paul was consumed in. Not because it earned him popular favor, but because souls were on the line. My friends, the only message that frees you from all the encumbrances All of the weights of life. From all of the burdens and the woes and the wearinesses and the worries. It's the message that in Christ you are free indeed. This is what the gospel declares to each and every single sinner. That in Christ you are free. My friends, enjoy your freedom today. Let us pray.